Of course, as we sit here in a group like this, there's going to be lots of different people feeling different things uh, as we reflect back on the year that's been and look forward to the year that is to come. Uh, Perhaps for you it's excitement, confidence, perhaps uh, it's fear, worry, concern, or maybe it's other emotions like sadness or loneliness. Often New Year's can be a time where those feelings really do get brought out. Or maybe it's just indifference. Another year gone, another year to come, another year to fly by. Uh, But most probably, of course, it's going to be a strange mixture of everything. Uh, Particularly because as Christians, we're nothing if not realists. Uh, 2023 had some wonderful highlights. There were many great things that happened in 2023. But 2023 also had some lows, some times where things were just really, really hard. Many of us are coming off 2023 with bruises and scars to be able to show that we've been through that year. And the reality is that 2024 will follow that same trend. So what do we do looking forward? How do we approach going into another year? Well, this morning we're going to ask a more profound question. A question for all of us, no matter where we are at in our faith journey. And the question is this, why believe in Jesus in 2024? Why commit to another year of following him? Why commit to another year of following him and everything that that entails, the highs and the lows? In fact, next year we're going to have a focus here at Barney's uh, on mission. But before we take the message out of this building and into the world, we need to be convinced of it ourselves. It's only if we're convinced that the message of Jesus really does bring real, true and wonderful hope, then we have the ability to offer it to others. So why believe in Jesus? Why choose to follow him? Well, for this reason that we're going to see today, because Jesus treats my broken heart gently. Because Jesus treats my broken heart gently. Let me pray and we will jump into the text. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you speak to us. As we come now before you, we pray that by your spirit, you would be working on our hearts, uh, particularly those of us. Uh, who are approaching 2024 with trepidation, uh, who are feeling a bit bruised and battered. Father, thank you that you love us and that you do treat us kindly and gently. And we pray that you would help us to see that in this story today. Amen. Well, this morning, I need to begin with an explanation of this passage and why we're looking at it. Because hopefully you noticed the little note on the Bible reading Uh, The little note on the Bible reading said this. James, we can go off the emotion wheel. Next slide. Perfect. Um, It says this, The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through to 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, etc., etc. So what is this little note uh, all about? Well, it's hopeful for, helpful for us to take a quick look at this before we begin on, in on the text. Not least because it helps us understand a little bit about how we can trust the Bible. But also so you can understand why we're looking at this passage in particular. 
A common question is about the reliability of the Bible. Uh, How close is the Bible to its original? How much has it been distorted over time? Uh, Does all the translation that has happened mean that the text is now different? Well, here's one of the great things about the Bible. We actually know a lot about it. In fact, there are over 5,000 ancient manuscripts. There are countless commentaries about it from early church writers. In fact, there's so much evidence that it is kind of like a big giant jigsaw puzzle. And we need to understand it like this because there are scribal errors. The people who were copying these things down were humans. We have so much manuscript evidence that we're able to trace the errors. So you can literally see at what point the error is introduced and how that error has been replicated. But the more manuscripts we find, the more we can add to the picture. That's all this to say that we can be very, very sure that the Bible that we have is the original. In fact, most Bibles will tell you if there is a problem. They don't hide it. And that is what is going on here. The note in our Bible there is to tell us that we're pretty sure that this story isn't actually in the original. In fact, there's no evidence of it in the early manuscripts or commentaries by the church fathers. In fact, when it's added, there are four different places that it could be added to. Two places in John and two places in Luke. So, and I know this will be a little bit of a disappointment for some of you, because it's a lot of people's favourite story. But it's probably not really in the Bible. So that's a shame. But the next question is, why are we looking at it today? Well, it's New Year's Eve, Ben's away... The assistant minister did mutter something about me being a heretic on the way out the door, but I'm happy to have a little bit of a look at it, uh, because there is actually a divide in the scholarship around it. Uh, if you read the commentaries, half of them will pass over it without comment, while the other half will give the caveat that I've just given and then explore it. So, just before we begin, three quick reasons to have a look at it. Number one, the story does seem to have been around pretty early, just not in the gospel itself. Uh, Here's how one commentator puts it on the screen there, James. The story was current in very early days as an authentic episode in the ministry of Jesus. Consequently, this episode requires serious attention and careful commentary. Uh, In fact, John himself at the end of John's Gospel will say that there are many other stories that he hasn't recorded. This might be one of those many other stories. Uh, Two, uh, it's completely consistent with what we know about Jesus... So we're not building a new or different picture of Jesus from these verses. And number three, this is a story that has particular cultural relevance for us now. That is, this is a story that is often misused in the context of Jesus' attitudes towards sin, and particularly sexual sin. So it's important for us to wrap our heads around what this passage is actually saying. So, if you want to ring your heresy bell, you can do it once now. You don't need to ring it continuously throughout the talk. So let's jump in and have a look at what our passage is saying. So the scene is set as Jesus appears in the temple courts in Jerusalem. If you've got the passage open, uh, we're going to make our way through this story, so read with me there. Given his growing popularity and the impact of his teaching, very quickly a crowd gather around him to hear him. And so he sits down to teach them. Uh, Here is a picture of Jesus in full teacher mode. People hungry to hear his new teaching. 
people hungry, to hear this man who has turned water into wine, healed a paralyzed man, has fed 5,000 people with bread. People hungry to hear of this man who claims to be equal with God, who claims to be the bread of life. And as you can imagine, the religious leaders of the day are not impressed with Jesus. This is a person who is threatening their authority, who is claiming things that only God can claim. And yet he is so popular with the general population that they can't move against him. So they have to come up with a way to discredit him. And so they come up with a trap. Have a look at verse 3 with me. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Uh, the trap here works on two levels. On the first level, they're asking a pretty basic question. How strictly is Jesus going to follow the Old Testament law? Deuteronomy 22.22 says this on the screen. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So while stoning isn't mentioned, you get a pretty clear mandate for capital punishment for adultery. And the trap here is simple. If Jesus says no, then they can accuse him of being soft on the law. In fact, probably of breaking the Deuteronomy law. They can discredit him that way. But on the other hand, Jesus is known and loved by the people for his compassion on the lowly and the vulnerable. If he takes a hard-lined approach with the law, then he'll be discredited in the eyes of the people. Both ways, Jesus is going to end up losing. But there's potentially a second level that this trap works on as well. Israel was under Roman occupation. And under the current laws, they were forbidden to use capital punishment. So if Jesus authorises the execution, he'll be violating Roman law. But if he doesn't authorise the execution, he'll be violating Jewish law. Again, either option, Jesus loses. That's the trap. So how does Jesus respond? Have a look at verse 6b. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, Jesus does this twice in this story. Certainly, it's used as a literary device to grow the tension here. But in terms of what he is writing, well, there's a lot of speculation. It could be that he is writing something. Maybe he's doodling. Maybe he's writing out the law with his finger. Or maybe he's drawing a literal line in the sand. Or, perhaps we need to just accept that if we were supposed to know what he wrote, the author would have told us. Instead, what is clear is verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus' response to this trap is astonishingly wise. On the one hand, he does authorise the law. The execution is to go ahead, and yet, at the same time, Jesus turns the focus from the woman back onto those accusing her. This woman is in the wrong, but aren't we all? Judgment is always a two-edged sword. If you wish to wield the sword of judgment, then you need to be prepared for when the sword cuts back against you. And this is pretty reminiscent of Jesus' words on the Sermon of the Mount, isn't it? 
on the screen there. Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's an incredible answer. Uh, Just think for a moment if we lived in a world that actually did this. How much better would this world be if we worked really hard on what we needed to do and spent less time pointing out other people's mistakes? I think our world would be a much kinder, gentler place if we did that. And so with that, Jesus goes back to drawing on the ground. Uh, Again, we don't know the contents, but we can feel the tension in the air. The air electric as Jesus delivers his line, Jesus calmly resuming what he was doing while the Pharisees and teachers of the law slowly process what he has just said. And they are stunned as they realize that the trap that they have set has completely unraveled. The older and wiser ones realize that they have lost this round and so they retreat. The younger ones, more brash, they hang around for a bit, but finally they give up when they realize everyone else has left. All of them walking slowly away, one by one, until finally it is just Jesus and the woman. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What an incredible moment. And it's this moment that is why so many people love this very nearly Bible story. Because Jesus' response is so surprising, so revealing, so beautiful. But before we look at Jesus and his response, we need to hold up for a moment and just think about the woman. Because we haven't really talked about her yet. In fact, up until this point, we've really just been using her as the Pharisees and teachers of the law have been using her. She has just been a prop. But that's why I think that this moment is so incredible, because Jesus in this moment doesn't treat her as a prop, as a device. He sees her in a way that nobody else in the scene does. And he treats her with dignity and respect and kindness. Because here is a woman who has made a mistake. She has done something wrong. In fact, she has done something seriously wrong. Adultery is not a small thing. We're talking about sexual relations with a married man, or perhaps she is the one who is married. We're not given the detail. But this is the breakdown of the family unit. A serious thing in that culture, a serious thing in our culture, even if that's not a popular view at the moment. And it must be serious, because whatever Jesus means when he says, I don't condemn you, and we'll get on to that, the next thing he says is, go and leave your life of sin. Jesus himself doesn't minimise what she has done. In fact, I think he gives her dignity even in that by upholding her autonomy. But this is kind of the point. Who hasn't made a mistake? Who hasn't made a big mistake that you regret? 
This woman is just being very, very human. And so I think that we instinctively have a deep sympathy for this woman. And this sympathy is increased as we read what happens to her. Because what happens to her is surely everybody's worst nightmare. Because regardless of any mistake that she has made, the way that she is treated in this episode is shameful. For one, as we've noted, she is being used as a prop. There is no attempt here by the Pharisees at justice. No, she is simply a pawn in their attempt to trap Jesus. And because of Jesus, she is dragged out of the court in front of a crowd to be made a spectacle of. To be pushed in front of a crowd of people and have her greatest mistake paraded around in front of others. This is humiliation. It is a public shaming. It's hard to imagine anything worse than having all your darkest, deepest, most shameful moments just out there for anyone to see. No one deserves that. There's certainly more than a whiff of misogyny going on as well. Deuteronomy 22.22 was clear that both men and women were guilty in this. The man seems to be conspicuously absent here. And so let's go back to Jesus' answer again. This woman, both guilty and a victim, life is complex, having suffered unbearable humiliation, this woman who we sympathise with, in fact, most of us identify with, empathise with, watches her accuser slowly walk away one by one. And then verse 10, listen to these words again. Put yourself in the shoes of that woman. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Why believe in Jesus? Well, because Jesus treats my broken soul gently. If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand why so many people have given their lives to Him, who trust Him with every single part of their heart, soul, mind and strength, if you want to have a reason for trusting in Jesus in 2024, then look at this Jesus. Because His words are so weighted with meaning. Let's finally get to them now. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus points out there she is free to go. Because there is no one to condemn her, no one who is guiltless who can throw the first stone. Except, of course, that that is not true. There is someone in this picture. Jesus could condemn her. Jesus is perfect. He has never sinned. Jesus could throw the first stone. But instead, he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, when you hear this story told, it can often be in the context of people saying that Jesus never judges, and he particularly doesn't judge people's sexual choices. But every time I hear someone quote this story without fail, they miss the last line. Neither do I condemn you, but it goes on, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus absolutely makes a judgment, and yet he also says he doesn't condemn. But that's a problem, isn't it? Because how do those two things fit together? How does Jesus hold those two things together, both not condemning but also judging? Well, it's about understanding who Jesus is. 
but not just who he is, but what he is going to do. You see, Jesus is God become human. We've seen that at Christmas. But he is God who has become human for the exact reason and purpose of saving people like that woman. That is why he has come into the world. But as God, he is also the rightful judge of this world. God is absolutely just. He is a God of justice. It is his mercy and his justice that are in tension in this story. But it's that tension that pushes us up from this story and focuses us forward on what is to come. Because Jesus knows where he is headed. Jesus knows how this story ends. You see, Jesus is not saying, neither do I condemn you in the way that you or I would say it. This isn't an Australian, nah, don't worry about it, mate. All good, no stress. No, Jesus can only say, I don't condemn you because Jesus knows that he will take the condemnation of her onto himself. Because just a few steps further down the road, it will be Jesus who is unfairly paraded before a crowd. It is Jesus who will be literally stripped naked, beaten, whipped and humiliated and shamed in front of everyone. And he will do it so that he can take the woman's condemnation onto his own shoulders. It is Jesus who will pay the price that Deuteronomy 22.22 demands. Jesus will be executed to purge the land of evil. And Jesus does it so that he can look the woman in the eye and say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it is not just that, it goes beyond that, because not only does Jesus take her sin upon his shoulders like a coat of sin that he drapes on himself, but he takes the humiliated and shamed woman, he picks her up, vulnerable and alone, he takes her in his arms, takes his cloak of righteousness and drapes it around her shoulders. He completely wipes away any stain on her reputation any hurt that she has caused, any hurt that was done to her. He restores her. He makes her whole. He gives her her life back, her reputation. He makes her right before God. He redeems her so that she can now leave her old life of sin behind and begin life with Jesus. Life afresh. So why believe in Jesus Well, because in a very real sense, we are that woman. That's why we empathize with her so strongly, because we all have shame that we are carrying around, scars that run deep, humiliations that chain us and drag us down, and our broken souls cry out in desperation for someone to come and save us, for someone to come and wrap us up in their arms, to take away the pain, the hurt, so that we can start over. So we don't need to live with the mistake, the hurt, our whole lives. And this is who Jesus is. Jesus has come for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter if it was your fault, if it was not your fault, or whether it was somewhere in that complex middle, Jesus has taken the shame that you feel, He has taken the condemnation that should have been yours. He has taken the humiliation 
and he has borne it all on the cross. He took it from you and put it on himself. And that's how much he loves and cares for you. But more than that, he took his righteousness, his perfect life, and he gave that to you as well. And he says now, go live your identity now as someone who has been made new. As John says in another letter on the screen there, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why believe in Jesus in 2024? Because we are that woman. Because Jesus deals with our broken souls gently. Because no matter what you have done or who you are, this is what Christians have believed. This is the heart of our faith. That right now, today, in the midst of anything and everything that you are going through, Jesus has straightened up and is saying to you now, Dear friend, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And your answer today, if you believe in him, is no one, sir. And Jesus looks you in the eye and says, Then neither do I condemn you. I have already paid that price. Go now and leave your life of sin. Live a life that is free in me. Amen.